0: Okay, just a reminder for you of the way that First and Second Samuel is written. These are really two books that comprise one kind of movement in the mind of the author, and I'll talk about that at the end of the night. But at the end of Second Samuel, the author kind of ditches the chronological method of recording David's life, and he gives to us six retrospective, vignettes from david's life just six things that he's looking back on and recalling from david's life that weren't put into the chronological portion of his life at least in second samuel or first and second samuel and just to remind you because we've been going through these vignettes over the last few weeks there's an interesting flows to the way that it works uh, let, let me see if you can notice the the pattern uh, he started this section by uh, recording a grievous historical sin that saul 's household had committed against the Gibeonite people. you guys remember that just nod your head if you if you remember that okay, you remember that So he God unearthed that sin and then drove it out of Israel. There was a certain thing they had to do to get that sin to kind of purge that from their national life. Then, after doing that, the next vignette was a story of Four of David's mighty men who went and battled against some of the descendants of the giants. Uh, Philistine you know, giants. And so that's the next vignette. The next one was the very long uh, psalm that David wrote just sort of as a, as a final major piece for the people of Israel. After that were David's last words, you know, his official literary words which also were a song. And then there's the story of all of David's mighty men or the record of all of David's mighty men. And now tonight we have another national secret sin that God is going to purge from Israel. So can you kind of see the the flow there? A national sin, David's mighty men, a song, a song, David's mighty men again, and then a national sin. So that's what the author kind of had in mind in closing out Uh, The book of 2 Samuel. So what we're going to read tonight is a sin that was found in Israel that God is upset with them over. We're not going to really know what that sin is, but God is going to evidence it in a few unique kind of ways. It's going to take a little explanation from me, I think, as we go through this. So let's read the first nine verses and just kind of see uh, the scene. It says again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people so that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said in verse 3 to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, well, the eyes of my lord, the king, still see it. But why does my lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from ero and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and onto Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh. Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites and they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land and really all of the geography that we just read, obviously to us it's a little foggy to us what all these places are and what they mean but The the basic idea of it is that they went as far east as they could go in Israel's territory. They went as far north as they could go. Then they went down the Mediterranean coast and went as far south as they could go. The idea is they covered everything that was in Israel's possession at that time. They went everywhere the Israelites were living to number the people in this census. So when they'd gone through all the land, verse 8, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. That means that they had 1.3 million men who probably the idea is were suitable for military age and probably the way the Israelites thought about that in that day and age was if you were age 20 to age 50 you could have been drafted into an emergency army so the idea there is that there's that many men in all of Israel and Judah who would have qualified to be part of David's army okay so that's the kind of the setup. And God is going to, just, just spoiler alert here, God is going to judge David for this. This is, this is actually a sin. This is something that he is not supposed to do. So let me address just a few things that stand out maybe to you as we read through this. First of all, notice in verse 1, it says that, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. There's no context for it. We don't know what it was that he was angry with Israel about. But if you've read the Old Testament at all, you could probably use your imagination. I mean, they knew, they were really good at all the sins, okay? So, so there, was, there was something that had become a national part of Israel that grieved the heart of God. Now, some of you, you might read God being angry at his people, and just even that idea might You know, cause you to bristle a little bit. You know, how could God be angry? I I think, on one hand, we do need to do a little bit of work to redeem the attitude of anger. It's not always a bad thing. Uh, There are things in this world that are worth getting angry about, don't you think? So, you know, God being angry, his anger is always righteous, it's always good, it's always pure. So God saw something that the people of Israel were engaged in that was killing them, and that angered the heart of God. Then, there's another little phrase there that may have stood out to you. It says also in verse 1 that God incited David against them and said, go number Israel and Judah. Now, in the New Testament, we learn from places like James chapter 1, that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. So he's not tempted by evil, and he also does not tempt uh, his people. That comes from James chapter 1. The interesting thing is that when you read this same story recounted in 1 Chronicles, the authors there say that Satan incited David to number the people. So some people think well okay so in Samuel they were expressing their theological view that God is so sovereign that he will sometimes incite a person to do a bad thing whereas in Chronicles they had a different theological view the priests probably being the authors of first and second Chronicles and their view was that you know God wouldn't do that, but Satan would do that. I think, though, what we're seeing is not actually two views, theologically, of God. I think what we're seeing are two sides, really, of, the, of a similar kind of thing. That God is so mysteriously, incredibly sovereign that he can take a temptation that the devil, if you want to attribute it to him, is bringing into a person's life and use that temptation to test one of his people. So God will not tempt you, but God is going to test you. He's going to try to build you up and strengthen you. And you better believe when a temptation comes into your life, God is trying to use that temptation not to bring you into sin, but he's trying to test you. He's trying to make you stronger to be able to handle all the future temptations that are coming in your life. So personally, I think that's what's happening here in this passage. All right, so, so David gets it in his heart. He feels that temptation, I want to number the people, and he gets his generals together, Joab namely, and says, hey, I want you to go out and I want you to number all the people. Joab argues with David. Joab had no problem arguing with David. We've discovered that all through David's life. He had no problem with that. He argues with David and he pleads with him. He says, don't do this thing. You know, please do not number the people. May the people of Israel be a hundred times more than they actually are, but don't send me out to number them. But the king's word, it says, prevailed. And so the generals went out along with Joab and they went through all Israel and they numbered the people. And and then Joab and the guys, they brought back the report. They said 800,000 in Israel, 500,000 in Judah, 1.3 million men who could be brought into the army at any given time. Now, like I said, God is going to judge David for this thing that he did. So a question that we have at this point is, what's the big deal? What was so bad about going out and numbering all the people? Now, some people will say in answering that question, well, he should have never counted the people of Israel. You shouldn't count the people of Israel. But that doesn't seem to be true because in the law, in the book of Exodus, God had specific rules for how to count the people. You know, He said, if you're going to count them, then this is how you're going to do it. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So it doesn't seem that the sin was that David counted the people, but listen to this. It seems that the sin for David was why he counted. But he went to the generals. He went to the leaders of the army, and he did not get a report of the population of all of Israel. He received a report of the number of men who could serve in Israel's army. In other words, it seems that David had come to a place in his life, perhaps in his older age, where he ceased to think about the power of God, the strength of God, And trust in the ability and might of God. And now he's kind of in this place in his life where he's thinking to himself, you know, we've got a good thing going. And we've kind of arrived. And I just want, I think maybe he was just kind of kicking back in his palace one day, just going, I wonder how big I could really get this army to be. And he wanted to know, how large are our forces? I think Joab understood you're putting your trust in the arm of the flesh rather than the arm of the living God. David, that has never been you. You have never been that guy. You have never been the one to trust in the might of man. You've always trusted in the strength of God. I mean, just imagine little teenage David running out to Goliath, you know? Saul tried to put his armor on him, and David said, I can't run in these, for I've not tested them. And he goes out to battle against Goliath with a sling in his hand and five smooth stones. I mean, you think at that point he was wondering, how how many soldiers are with me in this? He didn't care. All he cared about was that there was a God who had his invisible army, and that's where his trust Was found. So it seems that David was guilty of a little bit of self reliance at this point. Now, if I may, my personal conviction is that Israel was also in a similar spirit before the Lord in feeling that they were also a self determinate, independent people who no longer needed the Lord. And part of the reason that I say that is because clearly there was some kind of sin that was going on in Israel. That's why God was angry with them. But when you go back and read an exodus of how they were supposed to take a census, it tells us in Exodus that when they gave one, what each individual was supposed to do was to pay a half shekel to the Lord. It was to go to the temple and to the worship and all of that. And God said that the reason that they were supposed to pay that half shekel, it was a way for them, God said, to redeem themselves, to make atonement for themselves. What that means is that by paying that half shekel, it's like each individual in Israel was saying, I do not belong to myself. I belong to God. And really, since I belong to God, I should be at that tabernacle all the time serving him, sacrificing to him, praying to him, but I'm going to redeem myself so that I can live my regular life and I can work my lands and all of that, but but I want to communicate I belong to God. And when you read this census that took place, that's not even mentioned. So it appears that not only was David in a place of real self-reliance, I think also the people of Israel were in a place where they said, "We really don't have a strong need for the Lord." Now, before we move on to see the discipline that David came under for this and the discipline the people of Israel came under for this, I just want you to stop and consider that type of sin. Because, look, I mean, when you think about the life of David and when someone makes the comment, you know, David wasn't a perfect man, it's pretty clear what we're talking about. You know, we're usually referencing the David and Bathsheba episode and the subsequent cover-up and disaster and, you know, all of that. And, you know, I hope that if an individual in this church went to their life group and they announced to their life group with some kind of proud, you know, spirit, like, you know what, right now, the whole David and Bathsheba thing, like, I am doing that right now. I would hope that your life group would just bring the heat on you and, you know, give you the stern rebukes of the Lord and, you know, start to, you know, confront that sin in your life. But this sin, self-reliance, I don't need the Lord. I don't need his strength. I don't need his help. I don't need his might. Man, you could go to, 50, go to church for 50 years and no one would confront you for that. But in God's mind, this is an important, serious sin thing that David and the people of Israel had done. That self-reliance, it was a cancer that needed to be removed. This should be apparent to us when thinking about the earthly ministry of Jesus. You know, when people came to him caught in their uh, sin, in their adultery, in their wickedness, you know, the more, the, the sins of the flesh, so to speak, with that repentant heart, Jesus just hung out with them. He spent time with them. But who did he save his most severe words and rebukes for? He saved them for the religious elite who felt that they had no need for God, that they had arrived. Remember the Pharisee that Jesus talked about that went into the temple and he prayed to God and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. You know, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'm not an adulterer. Jesus rebuked that spirit. No, he said the spirit that he loves is the man who comes before the Lord, beats on his chest and says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So Jesus is looking to extricate that independent, I don't need God spirit from our hearts. All right, so I think that's probably the the kind of sin that was occurring in israel at this time all right so let's go on and see what happens next keep in mind that this is one of those sins that you have like david had so many opportunities to say you know what like i'm out i'm not gonna do this anymore because he had not almost 10 months of joab going out there and counting the people he had 10 months that he could have come back and said whoa whoa That wasn't right. I shouldn't have done that. But he didn't. He never took the opportunity to repent. So after almost 10 months, the number comes in, and it says in verse 10 But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. This to me is just beautiful. You know, if you think you're going to have a spotless record, you know, in your life of always, you know, perfect obedience before the Lord. I would like to burst that bubble tonight. That is not going to happen. Uh, however, it is beautiful to allow a uh, allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into your heart, to bring conviction into your life, and that, and that's what David had. the 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 prophet hadn't spoken; there was no correction yet given, but David, he was convicted in his heart. His heart struck him. So we love this about David. This is the old David coming back, the guy that when he cut off the corner of Saul's robe and you know he went back to his men and he's like, I can't believe I even did that. They're like, we can't believe you didn't cut off his head. He's like, I couldn't do that. I can't can't even believe I cut off the corner of his robe, you know, kind of thing. This conviction has come back in David's heart. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, Lord, Please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes will they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So, David here, you know, he confesses to God, he repents, and then the prophet comes to him. It's it's a very interesting scene because the prophet Gad basically says to him, Hey, look, you know, the Lord has heard you, but you are going to have to come under some discipline. And so, God is going to give you three choices. You have to pick. One, can you imagine this happening to you? You know, like something that God has to discipline you over and he just says to you through a prophet, here's here's your options. Option number one was three years long famine for the people of Israel. Option number two, three months long that they would lose in battle against their enemies. And option number three was three days long that they would fall into the direct judgment of the living God. It seems like the idea is that all three are equal in the mind of God. The three years of famine, three months of losing battle, and three days directly affected by God, that all three of those are equal in nature. David thinks about it, and he makes his decision. He says, look, um, I'd rather not, Suffer at the hands of my enemies. There's no chance that mercy is going to come from them, but maybe mercy will come from God. So I want to lean upon the Lord. So that was his way of choosing the three days rather than the three months or the three years. So the Lord, verse 15, sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men okay so 70,000 people die as a result of this I think numerically if I've done my math right uh, that would be similar to in our community the Monterey Peninsula it'd be similar to 4,000 people dying in a three-day period of time so you can imagine what that would be like you know there would be not every family would be affected directly but probably every Person on the Monterey Peninsula would know somebody who had been affected or, or somebody who had died. So this is a very serious thing. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, I think when David prayed that prayer, I think he was just doing what we do. He was praying a prayer from his vantage point. From his vantage point, he looked at Israel. He said, they're innocent. You know, I'm the one that's guilty. They are innocent sheep. Why would you do this to them? Uh, But then he didn't really give God an opportunity to answer. I think God did have an answer, and he probably could have showed David how they actually weren't as innocent as he thought they were. But that was his vantage point. You know, I'm the one who's guilty. But from the beginning of the text, we know that Israel was in sin. And so they all come together, David and Israel, under the divine judgment of God, the discipline of the Lord. Now, you know, I realize that this isn't like a super happy text here, you know, this isn't like, you know, I haven't met anybody today who's like, that's my favorite story in the Bible, I just love that one, you know, but what you're seeing here, I mean, in, in a very, um, you know, black and white, straightforward, very bold kind of way, yeah, really in a way that you wouldn't see on this side of the cross, uh, except. I mean, really, until Christ returns. I mean, some people say things like, I, I, I don't like the Old Testament. I like the New Testament, you know, because, you know, it just doesn't have that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, really? You know, it's just all reserved for when Christ comes in flaming fire and judges the earth. So it's there. It's just waiting. You know, God is is being long suffering so that people can repent and come to Him. Uh, but, you know, as you look at this, the people of Israel, David and Israel, they're coming under the disciplinary hand of the Lord. And what I want you to have is I want you to have this spirit or a a sense that the discipline of God is a really good thing in our lives. And for that, I'd actually like to take you to the New Testament. And, And I know a lot of times I'll just kind of read a verse or quote a verse that's either in my notes or in my mind and we won't turn there but I'd like to turn there tonight if we could because I really want you guys to see this from Hebrews uh, chapter 12 Hebrews chapter 12 which by the way I don't think I mentioned it to you guys as we got this teaching started that's this is what we're going to study next as a church we're going to study the book of Hebrews so I forgot to tell you that at the outset of the teaching so we'll be in Hebrews next as a church it'll take us a little while 13 beautiful chapters But in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the question of why would God discipline his people is answered. So let's read it together. It says in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the first answer to the question, why does God discipline his people? It's because he has loved them and received them. You know, in, in other words, he is not distant from us. He, doesn't, he isn't careless towards us. He is full of care toward us. So because he loves us and has received us, then he wants to bring discipline into our life. He goes on to answer the question, though, in verse 7. He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, this guy was writing at a different time, a different culture, a different place. I could name all kinds of sons who were not disciplined at all by their fathers, but this author cannot imagine it, you know, just in his culture, in his time. You know what son is there whom his father does not discipline? if you are verse eight, left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. so the second part of the the answer to the question of why does God discipline his people is not only because he loves and has received us, but because when you become born again you become one of god 's children. you know you become part of his family, and it is his responsibility to shape and bring maturity into the lives of his children. But not only is it his responsibility, it's not just like a distant responsibility, like I'm going to make a man out of you, you know, kind of attitude. He's in a loving relationship with his people. So because we're his kids, of course, he's going to bring his discipline into our lives. But then he goes on in verse 9 and 10 to say it this way. Because, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. I really like that little statement. I'm a, I'm a dad. I have three daughters. And I just get a lot of comfort from that little statement. First of all, that the discipline that I have to give as a dad, it's a short time that someday I won't have to have teenager conversations anymore. You know, someday, I, you know, I, 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 it's like I'm looking forward to that. I talk to my daughters about that all the time. Like, what's it going to be like when you're like 25? Like, we, we're going to talk on the phone, right? I'm going to come out and visit you. We're going to hang out together. You know, stuff like that. What's it going to be like when you're 35, 45 years old? You know, and I'm, I'm an old guy. Like, what's it going to be like? You know, I'm looking forward to that. It's a, he says, it's just a short time. And then he says, as it seemed best to them. That always has brought me comfort too, you know, because parenting is one of, you just feel like a failure all the time as a parent, you know, just like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is the plan. And then you try to do the plan and like, oh, wow, that didn't work. <laughs> I thought it was going to work. You're just trying to go as best as you can. But he says, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, the question, why does God discipline his people? Well, because he loves and has received us because we're his children, but also because in his children whom he's loved and received, he is trying to produce a certain level of character in our lives, that we would become holy like he is holy that we would become trained and tr- changed and transformed, that we would have the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which comes to those who have been trained, he says, by the discipline of the Lord. Now, That's not always pleasant. That's what he says there. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But even though it's not pleasant, the discipline of God on the life of a believer is a beautiful and wonderful thing. You know, the Lord will discipline us at times through his words. Sometimes just through scripture, as you're reading it, and you're kind of going through it, you're passing through scripture. And I'd encourage you, you know, as you're reading the Bible, uh, first of all, I'd encourage you to read the Bible. It's one of the ways that your Father in heaven is going to want to speak into your life. And as you're reading through the Bible, you know, it's really tempting. I, for me, I've had this Bible for, I don't know, six or seven years. And so I'm the kind of person, I have highlights in there and underlines and, you know, little things that have stood out to me as time has gone on. And, you know, to be honest, usually it's like the really encouraging stuff that is underlined. So I could like turn any book of the Bible and as I'm going through, you know, kind of like, oh, well, I can't wait till I get to the next underline, you know, or the next highlight. But there are times where there's something in God's word that isn't so much encouraging, but it's confronting something in my life. Confronting something in my spirit. The Father will do that. He'll do that not only through your personal reading of Scripture, but through the public proclamation of Scripture. Paul told Timothy that the day would come when people would not endure sound teaching, but would instead heap up for, them teach, for themselves teachers who would tickle their ears, who would be willing to affirm their proclivities and desires. And Paul told Timothy, he said, no, that, that's not going to be you, though. You preach the word. You declare the word of God to God's people. And look, there will be times that God's word, as it's publicly read and declared, it will make you happy. It will make you feel warm inside. It will be encouraging to you. And then there will be times where it chastens, and it disciplines, and it brings correction into your heart and into your life. Sometimes that word from the Lord comes from a fellow brother or sister in Christ who filled with the Spirit has a rebuke, perhaps. Maybe they've seen some slippage in your life. They've seen something that, that God is wanting to touch, and they have the boldness and you have the humility to, to both for them to say it and for you to receive it. But the Lord also will discipline us through circumstances, you know. And what I mean by that is that sometimes there are natural circumstances, uh, uh, excuse me, consequences is what I'm trying to say. Sometimes there are natural consequences, and sometimes there are supernatural consequences. Uh, Let me give you an example. If a man is married and he is rude to his wife, there are going to be natural consequences, and there are going to be supernatural consequences. What would some of the natural consequences be? You'd have a divided home you'd have a difficulty of just enjoying each other's company there'd be a coldness in the air if it was something that was habitual that persisted for a long period of time there'd be a lack of trust a lack of openness that would be there in the home there'd be a lot of just natural like you can't be in a relationship like that when you're treating each other that way there'd be a lot of natural consequences But let me read to you a supernatural consequence from 1 Peter 3, verse 7. There, uh, Peter said, no, Paul did not write 1 Peter. Peter wrote it. He said, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, listen to this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What that is for a husband who has not lived with his wife in an understanding way, that is a supernatural consequence. So you've got all the natural consequences, but God will sometimes involve himself and bring his own, you know, for lack of a better word, supernatural consequences into a person's life. But another way that God will bring discipline into our lives is just through life itself, life itself. Have you ever just stopped to consider that life is meant to shape, and to mold you. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this to a man who thought that the purpose of life was his own personal happiness, and this is what he said. He said, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you will find it quite intolerable. I mean, if that's what you think the world is about, like this is the place to make me happy, like you're just going to be disappointed all the time. But this is what he went on to say. He said, instead, think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. You know, when you see this world as a place for training and correction, you really kind of look around and you go like, man, it's really good for that. (laughs) Because all the time, you know, we're up against our limitations and new experiences, things we've never done before, pressures that we're experiencing. And perhaps we should consider that these things are brought into our lives for God to discipline and to train us as his people. So God will do that for you and for me, just as he did it for David. All right, let's read the rest of our story and close it up tonight. It says back in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and Gad came that day. So this is David's prophet, Gad, probably actually at least one of the authors of first and second samuel it's probably samuel nathan and gad who compiled first and second samuel and gad came that day to david and said to him go up raise an altar to the lord on the threshing floor of arun of the jebusite so david went up at gad's word as the lord commanded and when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Right, so David just gives his direction through the prophet from God to go up and offer a sacrifice uh, at this specific location, it was thre- a threshing floor that was owned by this man, Arna. So David comes up, Arna sees him, and he bows down like, what's King David doing here? This is a bad three-day stretch in Israel's history. What's David doing here? He falls down, David says, I'm here to offer sacrifices to the Lord that the plague may be averted. Then, verse 22, Arunah said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. So David tells Arana, he says, hey, I'm I'm here to offer a sacrifice to God on your threshing floor. Uh, And so, you know, for them, sacrifices were animal sacrifices uh, that they would, you know, offer at least in part to the Lord, and then they'd eat and consume themselves. So, Arna hears that and he's like, Man, this is King David. I got to do my part. So he tells him, he says, Look, you can have the threshing floor, and then you're gonna need some animals to sacrifice. You can have the oxen, and you're gonna need to burn the sacrifice or cook the sacrifice, so you can have their yoke and all the you know farming equipment that is made of wood that's attached to them. You can have all that, burn a fire, and it's yours. Okay, so he's just like willing to fund. The whole operation. So let's see what David says next. This is in verse 24. But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. This to me is one of my favorite statements from David. You know, I'm not going to give to God that which costs me nothing. I'm not going to come up here on this mountaintop, on this threshing floor, commanded by God to offer a sacrifice and act like it's even sacrificial for me to be here on your land with your stuff, with your oxen, with your wood, sacrificing all that is yours to God from myself. That would not even be a sacrifice. Well, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I've always loved that sentiment from David. It's the kind of spirit I want to have myself. You know, uh, and, and, and the attitude, a, a feeling, a sense that says, look, I'm not going to sit around and be the kind of worshiper of the Lord who never... Does anything sacrificial, says anything sacrificial, everything is just easy in my relationship with God. No, I want to offer to the Lord that which costs me something. I want there to be a little bit of price. I want to have some skin in the game. I want to lay my life down before the Lord. When I I read Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, that we are therefore brothers to, to live as to give our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. When I read that, I'm like, yeah, man, that's that's the way I want to live. I want my life. I want this body to be given as a sacrifice to God. I can tell some of you you have that same feeling. You're nodding your head like, yeah, that's you know that's what I want. I I don't want just to have a an a, a, a you know, an, an easy Christianity, just an easy believism, just like a take, 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 never sacrifice thing. I want to I lay down my life for the Lord. But as beautiful as that is, I think it's good for us to stop and say, but what made David feel that way? What made him, what made him think like that? I believe that David felt that way. I, I, because, and the reason I'm saying this is because there's some who will... You know, there's, there's part of that idea of living a sacrificial life and, and all of that. There, there's part of that message that is actually just appealing to your flesh. Now, I want to be a hardcore Christian. You know, I want to make a difference. I want to, I want to, I want to. And it's like, oh, whoa, hold on a second. I thought this was about the Lord, not about what you want to do or the reputation you want to have. It's actually not that hard to stir people up, to be like, yeah, let's sacrifice. I mean, it's harder to get them to actually do it, but to want to, you know, or to say, yeah, that's me, you know, kind of thing. But I think that David came to this place in his life because every time he was in need of God's forgiveness, every time he failed, every time he fell short of the glory of God, he would test that part of God's character, that part where God said, I'm Gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in loving kindness. And he would test that. God, is that really who you are? And God would forgive him, God would receive him. God would restore him. I think David just over and over again, he was just so floored by that. He was so forgiven and he felt so forgiven that he just said, man, I have to respond with something something that costs me because he has done so much for me. I don't think there was any spirit in David where he thought he could repay the Lord. I just think that he was so overwhelmed by grace that he said, I I have to do something for the Lord who has done so much for me. You remember that moment in the life of Jesus where he was eating a meal in the house of a man named Simon who was a Pharisee? You might remember this story. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, but when Jesus came in, he just sat down and, you know, Simon was there hanging out, but there was a woman in town. The Bible says she was a sinful woman. We don't know what she'd done, but it's not hard to use our imagination. But she heard that Jesus was in Simon's house, and so she came in. And she was weeping. She wiped his feet with her hair and her tears, and she she washed his feet in that kind of way, and she she kissed his feet as well. And she She just was generally bestowing worship and honor upon the Lord. And Simon, you know, Pharisee, he started having a conversation with himself. You ever had a little talk with yourself, a little conversation with yourself? That's what happened to him. And he started talking with himself. And he said, if this man was a prophet, because he was trying to figure Jesus out. So he said, if he was really a prophet, he would know who this woman was and He would withdraw from her he'd be repulsed he wouldn't let her touch him really Simon only knew part of what Jesus was Jesus was more than a prophet he knew everything about the woman yet he still wanted to engage with her and not only engage with her but to restore her so Jesus in that moment he knew what was going on in Simon's heart so he said hey Simon let me ask you there's two men one owes 50 denarii to a man, one owes 500 denarii to a man. They can't p- repay the debt. They're just totally out of their debt. And one day, the guy that is owed all that money, he forgives both of them their debt. He just wipes their debts totally clean. How, like, how awesome would that be? You know, I, I'm sure some of you are in debt right now financially. Wouldn't that be cool if just somebody came by and said, like, I just forgive you all that debt not just somebody like the bank you know if came, <laughs> pastor jeff comes and says that to you after service it doesn't count you know so simon answered well i think the one that was forgiven the 500 denarii rather than the 50 the one that was forgiven more debt and jesus said yeah you know when i came into this house you didn't give me the customary kiss you didn't give me the seat of honor and you did not wash my feet but when she came into the house she washed my feet she kissed my feet she honored me and jesus said because she's been forgiven much you see those who have been forgiven much jesus said they love much and then jesus said to simon he kind of changed it on simon he said he who is forgiven little loves little simon you know why you don't do any of those things for me because you just have no concept of grace. You have no concept of what it means to be forgiven. You think you are earning your position in the sight of God. And if you just even had a clue about forgiveness and grace, you would like this woman love me. I think this is the best way for a person to become radical and wild and zealous and sacrificial for the Lord, is to have a deeper, broader view of how fabulous, how wonderful, how deep the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God runs. Okay, so that was David. And, you know, this is what we want in our lives. We've got one more verse to go. Let's read it together. Verse 25. It says And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted. From Israel. Now, the reason that I saved that verse for last is because uh, it's it's a it's a very important verse in the mind of the the author of this book. To be, I think I even mentioned to you that I wasn't planning on ending the life of David today. Partly because, to be honest, for me when I read First and Second Samuel, I've kind of just thought to myself, that's not a very good ending to David's life. There's more that comes after. I mean, he talks about his last days, his deathbed. You know, some final decisions, some Statements that he makes and prayers that he prayed over the nation, all of that, in First and in First Kings and in First Chronicles, these other elements are mentioned. And you kind of wonder, like, why did they end Second Samuel like this? Like, where's all that other stuff in David's life? You get his last words and a last, you know, song and you know things like that. But, but, but here we are, you know, on the temple. You know, he he buys this, you know, plot of land. You know, and and this would actually become the place that. They would build the temple for the Lord. This is actually where the modern-day Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem exists. But you know, as I thought about it, I realized, oh, you know, for the author of First and Second Samuel, it's the perfect ending to David's life for two reasons. Reason number one is that First and Second Samuel go together. When you start out reading First Samuel, what you read is everything is bad. <laughs> God wants to speak to the people of Israel through a messenger, so he looks throughout Israel and he can find nobody. So there's a young woman named Hannah and she can't have babies and she's praying to God, God, would you give me a child? She keeps praying to God until she finally prays this prayer God, give me a son and if you do, I'll give him back to you. And when he, she prays that prayer, God's like, I got my man. I couldn't find anybody living, I had to find a womb to find a messenger, you know. So that's how the book begins. The priesthood chaos. It's a total apostasy. It's just a disaster at the book at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Now you come to the end of 2 Samuel. Again, it's a collection, first and second Samuel. You come to the end, you got a king who loves God, who's willing to be corrected by the Lord. You've got a king who goes up and purchases the future site of the, where the temple that his son Solomon would build. I mean, it's just like this whole statement of everything has changed. Everything has changed. But also it's a beautiful ending to David's life because what you have to notice here is that there were really two major sins in David's life. His error with Bathsheba, his sin with Bathsheba, and you know, killing her husband Uriah, and this one. And in both of them, David repented, and then after he repented, God redeemed the situation. You see, David married Bathsheba, and they had a child, Solomon, who had become a really strong leader in Israel. He soured at the end of his life, but he set them up for success in building the temple and writing a lot of scripture that we still study and meditate upon today. So God redeemed that situation in his life. And not only that, but in this episode, David sinned, he repented, and God redeemed and gave them the temple mount, the place that they would build a temple for God and worship him for many years. So it's like the author in his mind is saying, look at the grace of God. Look at what is unlocked when a man or a woman finally comes and repents of their sin. God is at the ready to bring, bring restoration, redemption into their lives. And that's who God is. God is a God who is able to redeem even the ugliest parts of our histories and lives if we will humble ourselves and come to that place of saying, God, would you forgive me? Would you receive me? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.